All righty. Well, why don't you come on back? Come on back. And grab your Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Everybody have a Bible? Good, 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 good. Well, turn it uh, then to Luke chapter 1. While we're doing that, just a few more announcements. Uh, those registration forms are on the back table there. Uh, absentee ballot request, registration forms. If you found, did we find the license? Chris, do you have your license? I am without a license. Okay, Chris is missing his license. Maybe it fell out of his wallet. If you find it, return to him, please. Okay. And also, listen, here's another place you can get plugged in. Listen, listen Bible college students here. There's about 20 things now uh, we've said. Uh, you can get plugged in through the, uh, what do you call that? Audiovisual thing back there. You can do that. You know what else we need? This is such a blessing. You, you don't know how big of a blessing this is to the Green family. Robin and Steve, where are they? Are they to go downstairs now? Okay. Oh, there they are. Raise your hand. Okay. So they, and, and some of you help them too, but uh, so we have cleaners that come through the week. What a blessing they are. Oh, my goodness. But then there's this one little niche ministry. It's such a blessing. It's called the cleanup after church ministry. And Robin and Steve quietly have been doing that for, I don't know, three or four years, five years maybe. And, you know, just like any of us, it would be cool if you could pitch in and take a week. And they can tell you what they do, how they handle that. Uh, so if you uh, want to plug in that way, what a blessing it is uh, for us. Because this all started in our house, right? A home fellowship. So when we started this, we were cleaning up. And then they kind of took that over from us. And uh, not that we're above cleaning up. Well, sure, we can clean up. But it's just been a blessing uh, for, for them to do that. So see them. You can get plugged in there as well. Uh, okay, I think that's all the announcements. And uh, this is a big day for us, a huge day. As Brad reminded me, seven years ago, in our house, we were beginning now uh, to teach through the book of Luke. And in about, I think, chapter 5 or chapter 6 or chapter 7, uh, John Serpa, if he's here, ha was very instrumental in this. We started meeting for the first time on Sunday mornings in the theater that's literally, boom, right across the river in the Elizabeth Grand Theater. And we started in the book of Luke. And then we went to Acts. So we were like, you know, six chapters into the book of Luke, which means, guess what we've done now? Not exactly, because on Wednesday nights, we're still finishing the book of Revelation. But this means now that we've gone through the whole Testament and we're returning to uh, the beginning. So we've done that now. Yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So everybody says, well, what are you going to preach on next? And I'm like, well, that's easy. We're just going to go back to the beginning and start again. And that's what we'll do with Genesis when we get through there. And we are about ready to, on Wednesday nights, as soon as the book of Revelation's over on Wednesday nights, we'll then jump into Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Next, okay? So that's next. Uh, obviously, the Old Testament's a little longer, taking us longer time. I get lost in the weeds sometimes, but hey, what are you going to do? Okay, Luke. Luke. Turn there, and uh, let's, let's uh, begin in chapter 1. I've been blessed this week. <laughs> uh, and, and really this month, uh, as I've been studying for the book of Luke coming up. I've been blessed because the Lord has this way of just showing those who are studying again, God's word is so multifaceted. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm a human being. Did you know that? And uh, when I turn to Luke, you know, you start to think to yourself, oh boy, okay, I know that story. What could I possibly share, Lord, for the people about a story that I know? And I seem to know. And Lord has just shown me different things about the book of Luke and, and brought me to good resources about the book of Luke that just 
uh, I've seen it in a way that uh, maybe I hadn't seen it before. So you're blessed by waiting seven years to come here, I guess. <laughs> so let me do this. Let's pray. And we're going to read through the beginning of it. And uh, then we'll move on. Well, Lord, we do. We, you've been listening in and we need your help. <laughs> Lord, pray that we would, you would give us words uh, from your throne room uh, to bring here as we explain what the text says. Uh, Lord, and that you would do a mighty work in all of our hearts as we set aside the things of the world, even a football game or a lunch, and just focus on you, Lord, on your glory and your majesty and your character and your infinite mercy and grace. Lord, help us to unpack the things that you want us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's do this. Let's read the first uh, few verses, and then um, uh, we're going to try and move through as much of the first chapter today as we can, but who knows how far we'll get. Let's start uh, with the word of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of these or those things in which you were instructed." The word of the Lord, chapter, verses 1 through 4. You, you look at this and you read this and you say, well, that's pretty fantastic. Okay, what does all that mean? But something that you don't see, I don't think, because I don't know that anybody in here is a Greek scholar, is that these first four verses, this is so encouraging, these first four verses are written in the most classical, highest, intellectual uh, uh, form of Greek that there is. It's different than the rest of the book, written in common Greek. First four verses, written in the highest form of Greek, which is telling you something about the author. Here's what it tells you. He's really smart. He's an academic. He knows his stuff. In fact, most of you know this in Colossians 4.14, it's said that he's a medical doctor. He's a doctor. He's a doctor, so he would have studied. Now, doctor doesn't mean necessarily like today. Sorry, doctors, if I'm um, overstepping my bounds. But doesn't mean that he was necessarily wealthy and rich. Remember, these people lived in the Roman world. We don't know this for sure, but many uh, professionals, lawyers, doctors, uh, teachers, uh, were slaves. Were slaves. Uh, they lived under the household and served a household. I'm not saying Luke was that, but we don't necessarily know whether he was rich or a slave or whatever. But one thing's for sure, he's a doctor, and he's really, really smart. He knows the classicals. You get it? That's important. You follow, file that away. Because, see, oftentimes what men and women do when they get into this life... The fear of God, we know from the Proverbs, says is the beginning of wisdom. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So as smart as many people can be, you know, a, 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 a degree from Yale or Harvard or Stanford or Wittenberg. That's where I went to school. Just a joke. Or a high northern. There's another place I went. But anyway, uh, wherever... Uh, doesn't necessarily mean there's wisdom or a, a, a person's wise. True wisdom comes from fearing the Lord first. Now, but, but that's funny because is it a sin or are you more pious or holy by acting as if you don't know things? No, we serve a God who obviously is an intelligent being. The Bible tells us, he tells us himself, come let us reason. So it's great if God's given you that ability to be a smart, intellectual academic, that's wonderful. But do it as unto the Lord. Don't worship your education. Don't worship uh, philosophy and humanism. But here, worship the Lord first. And in your academia, serve him with all glory. Right? Pointing to the Lord. So whether you're, you know, you've been given the brains 
of somebody who could go to Wittenberg, kidding, Stanford, or wherever, or you haven't been given that academic sense. Here, here's the point. Luke is for you. You know why? You know why? Because even though this guy's smart, has the ability to run in all of those circles that he could run in, his is the gospel for all the people. That's what's beauty about it. He's concerned about the poor. He's concerned about the poor. He's the one that tells us that Mary and Joseph bring the offering that only the poor people could bring, the turtle doves, the pigeons. Remember that? That's in 2 chapter 24. Jesus says the poor have good news preached to them in 722. Luke only tells us about this parable of the rich man and the poor man. And he says, not blessed are the poor in spirit, like in Matthew 5, but he said this, blessed are you poor. He has a heart for those who are down and out. He has a heart for the outcasts, the sinners. Remember this? You remember when that lady anointed Jesus' feet? I almost get uncomfortable in my flesh reading it. And then took her hair and wiped them. Remember this? Remember this? You know where that took place? That took place in Simon, Simon's house, who was a Pharisee. You imagine how awkward all of that must have been for a lot of the people there. It wasn't for Jesus. It wasn't for the lady. I'm not saying there was anything wrong with it. No, I'm not saying that. But, but see, Luke holds that story up and says, oh, man. This one who just gave up everything, didn't even have a lot, but gave up everything to worship the Lord. The Lord holds her up. You see that? How about this? Lest you think he's only for them. He, he, he's, he's, uh, he, he's even for and, and says the gospel's for the traitors in society. What do you mean? Well, he gives a great place to Zacchaeus, the tax gatherer. The tax gatherer, the tax person, the one who was seen as... Uh, being a, a, a traitor in Luke 19. How about even this? He shines the light by the Holy Spirit in chapter 23 of the penitent thief, the thief on the cross. The one that many, even in the Christian church, would wipe their hands of. He, he marvels. He, he, he shines the spotlight on that profession of faith. Jesus saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. The outcast. Even the ones... You see, who've committed the most heinous crimes. And of course, you all know this, that beautiful story of the prodigal son. You see that self-righteous son and the prodigal son and the father just getting up and running with that big bear hug to welcome him back out of the pig slop. He, sign, he shines the gospel or the light of the gospel on these people. In other words, here's Luke in his academia, his medical studies, this companion of Paul. Uh, by the way, the, we, we find out in Acts, that's where we know this. It's such a fascinating thing. Here, here Luke is writing Acts, and for 15 verses, it's they, 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 they. He's telling the story. And then you get to Acts 16, and all of a sudden it becomes we. In other words, most people believe on the second and third missionary journeys, Luke was there. And you got this guy. He's this medical doctor. He's, he's, he's got this studies. And, you know, what, what happens to most people that, or many people, I don't know if I'd say most, but many people that have all these stations in life. You know, the, the, Jesus even told us, you know, things are going to choke out the Lord in their life. And, 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 and that'll crowd everything out. And then there will be this pursuit of wealth and knowledge and position and power. Not Luke. He used all of that. To serve the Lord and uh, accompanying Paul, but also then to shine the light on the least, the lost, and the lonely. And saying to them and to us, it doesn't matter. The walls are broken down in the gospel and all of us can come by his blood. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? See, how dare we? How dare we walk past somebody who disagrees with us and write them off? How, how dare we? How dare we speak out against people who disagree with us? How dare we? 
Oh, yes. Listen, listen. Live your life. Have your convictions. Uh, you're, you can speak up in the political arena, of course. But to hate others is not Christian. Here, Luke says, you've got all this position and power. I think this is what it's done. All this position and power. I've even laid all of it down. And Lord, you've returned it to me. And now I'm going to go and glorify you. And this gospel is open to all. There's room for all here. Whether you're rich or poor or you're on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle, there's room here at the table for all of us. But you come, look, 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 one way. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then we're all one. There's neither Greek nor Jew, woman nor male, slave man nor free man. No, we're all one in Christ because we have the life of Christ in and through us. Well, listen, you know, you can see this. He says in verse 1, he's, there's many that have taken this task on. And they did a narrative. In fact, you have Matthew and Mark uh, and John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being the Gospels more of uh, his life, you, you know, and uh, the chronology as much as it could be. And then John written for a, a separate purpose. But there were also all kinds of extra-biblical narratives that were written. But he says... They have uh, uh, set in order a narrative of Jesus' life that was fulfilled among us. Now, that word gets me. I circled it there. You catching this, folks? You got to catch this. I just got to say it. I don't even feel like saying it today, but I need to say it. Here's this guy who could have gone off the rails with his highfalutin academia and his position with the apostles. I'm the companion of Paul. And he sets himself squarely in the fellowship of the body, us. I don't know why, but the Lord says we need us. And what I'm saying is we need community. I, I just got to tell you, Barna Group says 30% of the people who've stayed away from COVID aren't coming back ever. Let that sink in. 30% of the people who've stayed away from COVID aren't coming back ever. But then there's other people. Now listen, if you have a underlying condition and you're a susceptible population, of course you need to be circumspect of all that. But if you're staying away because it's convenient and only you know it in your heart, I, I just got to tell you, you're missing out on the blessing. Am I trying to coax you into coming to this church and bi building big numbers? No, 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 no. I'm saying do not forsake assembling together. For some reason, the Lord asks us to be in community to worship him. And if you need to spend time at home, yes, do it. But if you're cruising on the couch, I just got to say it, folks. We're in sin. We're in sin when we do that. Now, everybody needs a break every once in a while, especially for me. But, but you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. We need to be together. There's something powerful in here. When I hear you singing, it, it encourages me. I'm blessed when I hear you singing out the praises, when I see you praying together, when I hear you discussing, you know, Luke or whatever, you bless me, something. There's something here where we're sharpening one another. We are born into a body that needs to be in community. Uh, should we go into our prayer closets and have time alone? Of course. But born-again, spirit-filled people who have the life of Christ, who are abiding in Jesus Christ, do not forsake assembling together. Just got to say it. Sorry if I stepped on your toes. <laughs> there you go. Well, he says us. And he says, hey, listen, I was around people who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and it was delivered uh, them to us, and it seemed good to me also. In addition to this, he says, having had perfect understanding of all of these things from the very first. If you read chapter 16 of the Acts to the end of Acts, or at least to the end of the second and third missionary journey, you talk about an education. Like, for instance, it starts out, you all know the story. 
these two apostles getting thrown in a Philippian jail. If I was Luke, I probably would have been panicked. Oh my goodness, what do we do now? And you watch and you see the calm and the praising going on. And you hear from the prison, the, what? They're in there praising. I'd have been crying like a baby probably, Luke said to himself. That, that's teaching him and he's growing and he's seeing this. And you could see all the different things that he witnessed and saw. He, he got the education of all educations. But when it says he wrote to you to do an orderly account, he's telling you that what he did was is that he went and investigated like some historian would do. He talked to people. He, could, he had access to Mary and to the, the, the apostles. And he had all these people. And he's writing this account to this person called Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a Gentile name. Uh, he is writing a letter to this guy who has a name that means lover of God. Theos. You see that? Phyllis or phileo, lover of God. You see this? He's writing to a person. Some people believe this is a high Roman official. And whether his name was Theophilus or not, as oftentimes they would use code words, don't know. But he's writing to lover of God. And so this letter, look at this, or excuse me, this gospel is written not only to a lover of God, but it's written to people who love God. It's for all time one of the great things that we can study. He writes to most excellent Theophilus that you may know what? What is he trying to do here? That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were, guess what that's the word for? Catechism. You were instructed. What is a catechism? It's, you know, we have catechism here, folks. Guess what it's called? Foundations of the faith. <laughs> All this means is he was instructed in the basics. We did it this morning in uh, Foundations of the Faith. If you haven't done Foundations of the Faith, I don't care how, how many years you've been a Christian, do Foundations of the Faith. It's amazing. It blesses me every week. But whatever, what we're doing is we're building those building blocks, the foundations of the Christian life. That's what he's saying right here, that you know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. You already were instructed in the basics lover of God. But now I'm writing this in an academic way by investigating, by talking to witnesses, because I didn't actually, uh, wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus, but I know the people who were. And there's a sermon in all of that. You can trust the Bible. And here are these things, uh, uh, he's writing so that you can be certain of those things which we were instructed. See, that's the key, folks. Where do you get the certainty? I'm just going to let it lay there. Where do you get the certainty? Where do you become certain? Here's where I think. Turn with me to John 15. You all know it. Every single one of you know this probably. If you don't know it, know it again. Where do you become certain of the things of the Lord. <laughs> you know what it is? It's not by learning a paradigm. It's not like going to Susie Orman's school of Christianity and learning some silly paradigm about who and to be a good boy or a good little girl and get reward. No, 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 no. That's what I thought Christianity was. Here's where you become certain. It's right in John 15. You all know it, but think of the implications. He, Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my father is the fine vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What do you, uh, what's, I know what your purpose for your life is, by the way. It's easy because I just read. <laughs> I know what the purpose of your life is. So do you if you read the Bible. It's to bear fruit unto God. <laughs> it's to bear fruit so that other people in this world... Well, first to glorify the Lord, but then also the other people in this world, they can just come. You're the vine. You're, you're, the, you know, you're the branch. The vine's feeding you, and you're just full of this great big fruit, and it's just hanging low. And people can just come by and go, boom, and take a bite and be refreshed. To glorify the Lord through fruit, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken. And here it comes. 
Where do you become certain? I'm convinced it's right here in verse 4. You abide in me and I in you. You don't, you get this, folks? Here's what I used to do every Sunday. Lord, I promise you, I'm going to be a good little boy this week. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to love people. You're going to be so impressed. It's going to be amazing. And then by 1.15 in the afternoon, that was all shot. And it's frustrating. You're like in the dryer. You're just being, you know, it's just, you know, you're tumbling everywhere and you don't, can't even come up for air. But here's where you become certain. You abide in him and I in you. And as the branch doesn't bear any fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You and I must learn to be abiding people. What's abiding me? It means spending time with, connecting to. If, if Jan and I got married 27 years ago, she probably would like this. I wouldn't so much. And said, you know what? We're going to get married, but we don't really want to spend time together. You, you say, oh, but that's what about 90% of all Christians do. There's no spending time. It's learning doctrines and paradigms and how to be a good little boy. But there's very little abiding in today's church. That getting alone with the Lord Getting alone with the Lord and just communicating and that back and forth, the discourse between, Lord, here's my hurts and wants, and, but, but Lord, I want to just glorify you. And how do I do it? In you is wisdom and sanctification. Lord, you, everything I need for life and godliness is found in you. So I'll come to you and I just want to plug into you. And all during my day, I'm just in his presence. And then at night, you know, you don't watch the football game. You, some of us do, but, you, you know, no, I'm kidding. You don't watch the football game. You put that stuff aside, and you, it's your, you know, you're there with the Lord again, and you're just together, and you're receiving from him. See, he wants to give you real life, not just doctrine or things on a page or an outline to do or five keys to happiness. He wants to give you himself. How do you become certain you abide? I am the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. There's nothing eternal that comes out of a relationship that never abides. Do you get it? I don't even know if I said that right, but you figure it out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right? You can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. And if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. But if you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You know how you become certain? You abide. You learn to love and to trust. And where do you learn to love and to trust? You, you take this into your prayer closet. You get with the word and you pray and the Lord shows you things about his glory and character and trustworthiness and uh, faithfulness. When you be, uh, are faithless, he remains faithful and you can trust. And then you go out into the world under the prayers of God and he proves himself. You should put this in a song. He proves himself more and more. You might not get what you pray for. We'll talk about that in a minute. Like every little thing. Lord, I need a Lexus this week. That's how we pray. Brand new suit, Lord. I need it. What about the things of the Lord? That's how you become certain is abiding. So here, you learn these things and you abide in his word and you abide with him. And you see these things that you were instructed in come real in your life. Start flowing out of your life, the very life of Christ. Well, look at this. Here's this historian and he sets right to it, man. Why is this important? I'll tell you why this is important. Look at this. Any, you guys in your Bible, do you guys have a little break between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I do. Go like this. Hold it up. One page. You guys got that? Guess what that represents? 400 years of God not speaking. That a girl. You did it. Good. What do I mean? Well, if you go back, if you go back to the book that was right before uh, the Gospels, if you go back to the book that was right before the Gospels, uh, Malachi 4, 6, 
or Malachi, uh, I guess, uh, by himself. If you go back uh, to Malachi, you understand that for 400 years after this prophet had spoken, 400 years after this uh, prophet had spoken, there was nothing. But here's what he left them with. There was no speaking by the Lord. There was no communication. Look at this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So can you imagine if you're living in the time of Malachi, you're like, sweet, he's coming. The one who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah is coming. Elijah, fantastic. And you know, you waited one day and then two months and then two years. And that turned into 400 years, folks. The American church can't wait 400 seconds for their prayers to be answered. And if it's not answered in 400 seconds, oh, God must not love me. Here, they waited 400 years, which tells me something. When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. Watch it, whether you believe it or not. But, but I want you to believe it. He wants you to believe it. But Lord is making a promise. And here there was no such speech. So why is Luke important? Or why is the writings of Luke important? Because what he's setting down in a comprehensive way is he's tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's linking it up. And now he's writing this beautiful gospel that says all can come no matter whether you're Jew or Greek or whatever. It's lovely. And here he says there was in the days of Herod, what would a historian do? He would tie it to a time that you could identify. And you certainly can identify this. This is Herod the Great. What a misnomer. Very short guy who was very uh, intent on showing himself big and mighty. And so he had big building plans and he mistreated his family in ways that you can't even imagine. He killed several of his family members, including several wives. And he was just a dastardly dude. And you see him in the beginning of the book of Matthew. He's the one that the Magi came to. And said, we saw this star from the east, you know, for the, the king of the Jews. And he said, oh, tell me about it. But really what he wanted to do, you know this, is wipe out those babies. And he sent out an edict. That's this Herod. Now listen, you need to know something. Herod the Great is from the line of Edom. He's called an Idumean. Or the line of Esau. Did I say Edom. The line of Esau, he's an item. He, he, remember Esau and Jacob and they struggled and remember all that? Well, if you don't, go polish up on that. And what happened was uh, by this dynasty, this family dynasty got in power up in, uh, you, you know, uh, up in the area of, of Canaan or up in the area of where the Israelites lived. And eventually, listen to this, he became or their dynasty became a puppet of the Romans, the most hated Romans. So he pretended to be uh, for the Israelites, but really he was being paid or being sanctioned by the Romans. So he was there to spy on his own people, or you get what I'm saying, right? So this Herod, who's murderous, a traitor in some ways, and very hated, this is when this all happened. He was the king of Judea, and there was a certain priest named Zacharias. Now, why does it say of the division of Abijah? Well, if you go back to 1 Chronicles 24, 1 Chronicles 24, I'm not going to go back there now, but it says, do you know that only certain tribes or tribe from the 12 tribes of Israel could work at the temple area? You know this? And the tribe of Levi, that's why the book is called Leviticus. Great book, by the way. The tribe of Levi is where these people came from, right? And one specific part of that family, Aaron, Aaron's part, they served right in the heart of the temple or the tabernacle, right? But the other families did worship but kind of surrounded themselves around the worship or assisted those people who did the 
main stuff. Is everybody tracking with me? But watch this. In 1 Chronicles 24, the Lord, David actually did this before he transferred power over to his son to actually build the temple, divided uh, those families up into 24 groups or 24 courses. And what they would do is they would say, two times a year for one week, you can come and help around the temple or the te temple area. Okay? So, are you, listen, if you weren't one who worked in that temple area a lot of times, this was a big deal. And he, what they would do is when they would get there, they would cast lots. Read this. So his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. This priest marries into the daughter, or a daughter of Aaron. He's getting closer to the tabernacle. You see it? And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. In other words, what the Bible's trying to tell you here, because you're going to see it in their discourse, they're talking, we've given up on our prayers. It ain't happening. We're giving up. We've been good. We've been righteous. But the Lord ain't answering our prayers to, be, uh, to have a child. Now, listen, under tradition, not the Bible, I want you to hear what I'm saying. The tradition says that folks in the Jewish community back then who could not have children were looked upon as something was wrong with them. The Bible never says that. We don't say that. There is nothing wrong. Except there's sin in all of our lives. But, but listen, there's sin in the world, you know. Get what I'm saying? But back then, the Jewish tradition was, you must have done something wrong. You can't have a baby. So Elizabeth and Zechariah must have had to face a lot of staring eyes and back to, or talk behind their back and that sort of thing. Get it? So that's what the Bible's telling you. But it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division... According to the custom of the priesthood, look, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, this was a big deal. When you went to the temple, there were these outer courts. And when you were arriving to the temple, there was an altar where the priests took the sacrifices and slaughtered the sacrifices and sprinkled blood on the altar. You get that? I want everybody to know that. Right behind it was a lay, uh, uh, excuse me, was a wash area, a wash basin where the priests could wash up. Right behind that was the temple itself. Had one door, you could go one way, had two rooms. And in the front room on the right-hand side were the 12 loaves of showbread. On the back wall was the altar of incense. On the left wall was that big candelabra, Right? Everybody track it with me? By the way, in the back room was the mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what happened for Zacharias? A thousand or more priests in his division. The lot falls on him to burn the incense at the back of that first room, which means he had to take coals from the altar where the sacrifice happened, and he brought them here. Uh, some say uh, another priest would do that. He would actually light the incense. Now remember, there's courts. Everybody stick with me because I'm telling you there's a point. There's courts around it and there's people in that court watching the priests go in for the morning and the evening sacrifices to offer the prayers. And what they would notice and see is that here you go, you got this guy, uh, he's back at the back of the room, and he, he's doing the incense, he lights the incense, and the prayers are lifted up. And that always represents in the Bible the prayers of the saints, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Your prayers are sweet to the Lord. And yet, I'd challenge you, I'd bet you, if I asked every one of you, what is the most difficult Christian discipline, I bet every one of you would say prayer. If not every one of you, I bet 95% of us. Why is it? Because the enemy wants to keep you from the thing that pleases the Lord. That sweet-smelling aroma. And what, guess what would happen after he was done offering the incense? This priest would come out and give that blessing 
that you find in number six to all the people that were waiting around knowing that the prayers had been accepted or been, at least been put up to God. You get it? That blessing that you find that made God's face shine upon you and give you peace, you're familiar with it. But it didn't happen. Why not? Well, here's why. On the biggest day of his life, work-wise, the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord inside that tabernacle appeared to Zacharias, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Of course. Can you imagine? Here you are, big day. Everything's going to go smoothly. All right, and there's this angel, and he's just so magnificent, and boom, it just, what have I done? What's going on? And the angel says to him, of course he would say this, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Now, I want you to mark this in your Bible. Mark it in your Bible. For your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John, or Jehovah is greatness, or gracious, excuse me, Jehovah is gracious. You shall call him John. Here comes this angel, and the angel says, now listen, now listen, what, what, do, you, what do you think, by the way? Here, here's what I think. I think Zacharias and his wife, because we're going to hear this in a minute, he's going to say, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife, there's no way. That's what he's saying later on. Look, look, look. And here he is on the biggest day of his life uh, for his occupation. And guess what he's going in there to do? He's going in there, and I bet you, listen to this, he's praying things like this. Lord, bless my country. Bless my people. Lord, bring about your Messiah. Upset the Romans and bring about your kingdom. But to me, it seems like reading the rest of the way that Zacharias and his wife had give up on the prayers of a son. But listen to what the angel says. Not your prayer was heard, but your prayer is heard. That's really important. Here's this angel that's come from the throne room of God, and he's reassuring him in the present tense voice. You know that prayer that you prayed a long time ago, that you've given up on, that you probably even forgot about. God hears it now. He hasn't given up on it. Look at this when you turn to Revelation chapter 8. Go there. When the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw the seven angels, John says, who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it. Listen to what else. With the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. That, you know, that the altar, or excuse me, the tabernacle in heaven is a picture of what's in heaven, the Bible tells us. And if you see the vision that John's been given, listen to this. The prayers of the saints seem to be saved, recorded, important, known. <laughs> I got to tell you, I think that's way uh, better than that reaction. I just think that, listen to this, the prayer you were praying four years ago that maybe you've given up on, the Bible tells us that he hears it like it's now. What's weird is sometimes like you pray something like this, Lord, just give me a simple, quiet life four years ago. Lord, just give me a simple, quiet life. I just, no distractions, just focusing on you. Maybe that was your prayer. And then four years hence, maybe you've forgotten about that prayer. You pray, Lord, oh, geez, get me out into the, the world and uh, get me uh, involved with people. And, the, uh, and, and you're wondering, my goodness, why isn't the Lord answering my prayer? Well, maybe you forgot the prayer that you prayed, but the Lord didn't forget the prayer that you prayed. Are you praying, listen, listen, are you praying for a prodigal? 
Huh? Is there somebody in your life that's gone away from the Lord? And you're just saying, Lord, you haven't done it. I'm giving up on that prayer. Don't. Don't give up on that prayer. Don't give up on that person. Is the Lord spoken to you? A vision, a dream, uh, something he said to you, spoken to your heart? Uh, like, Lord, I want you, you know, maybe start a home fellowship or start a prayer group or start a women's Bible study at the jail. I don't know. I'm making things up. And you think God's forgotten about that? He hasn't. He knows it presently. He's working on it. He's working these things out. The angel says to him, don't be afraid for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Can you imagine? Here he is doing the greatest thing in his occupation of all his life. He's given up. And the angel comes and maybe what, you know, uh, Zacharias is thinking, did I do something wrong in here? Am I going to get zapped? What's going to happen? And the angel says, that prayer you've even forgot about. We're going to answer, or God's going to answer it. Wow, it's so beautiful. And here, you see, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. What's that a reference through to? That's the Nazarite vow, not Nazareth vow. It has nothing to do with Nazareth. It's a Nazarite vow. Paul took it for a season, for a time. You know Samson took this vow. It's that thing to be just fully dedicated unto the Lord. This one would take that vow. You find it in number six if you want to research it. And he'll also be with a, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Wow. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Guess what everybody would know right there? Boy, Luke is tying this to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Wow. The Lord is speaking. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And there it is, the disobedient to the wisdom, the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That is the ministry of John the Baptist. He wasn't Elijah, but he came in the spirit of Elijah, we're told uh, in another gospel. You know this, right? So here it is. You got the link between the Old Testament and the New, and then the Messiah, the one who's coming. It's this one through Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Zacharias said to the angel, this seems to be, listen, this seems to be, and I got to tell you, I sympathize with this guy. This seems to be statements of disbelief or no trust, right? I've given up. We've given up. Are you sure? I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. There's no way. I'm doubting God's ability, or Zacharias is doubting God's ability to fulfill his own word. Did you catch that? He, he doubts the ability of the Lord to fulfill his own word. Are you catching it? Because you know what, folks? We do this so often. We get into a trial. We love to spout, listen, we love to spout this out. We love to say it. We like to argue over the translation. That's my dig at the, anyway, whatever. We like to argue over the translation, but we love to spout it. We put this up on our, 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 our refrigerators. We love to learn this verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But then land yourself in a trial and believe that one. We get into a trial and you say, well, some things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Some things. But this one thing, Lord, you're missing the boat here. That's what we say. We might not say it, but that's what we say. That's what we think. No, the trial, too, is working out everything good for you. The trial, too. And if you go back into Luke right at the beginning, right here in chapter 1, Zacharias said, how should I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in age. Here's this priest, the one in the tabernacle, doubting God's ability to fulfill his own word. And the angel answered and said, hey, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I bring you these glad tidings. I'm giving you the gospel. The gospel is coming through this. But behold, you're going to be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place. Why? Why could Zacharias, why was he 
couldn't speak. By the way, if you look at verse 62, I don't think he could hear either. I don't think he could speak, but I don't think he could hear either. You, you look it up. Tell me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> well, you don't have to look it up now, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but tell me if I'm wrong. He couldn't hear or speak. Listen, do you understand there's no power when you don't believe or trust? Are you understanding this? We don't preach uh, prosperity gospel or faith in faith. No, we preach faith in the one who's worthy to trust, God himself through son Jesus Christ and by the spirit. That's who we trust in. We trust in him. But when we don't trust, we become just like the one in 1 Corinthians 13, a clanging gong. People might hear us, but there's nothing. There's nothing of eternal value. There's no beauty. There's no power. Why? Because we're not believing. And there's many of us going around, including pastors, people in the pulpit, who don't believe it themselves. They're just regurgitating, regurgitating something somebody else has said. They don't believe it themselves. There's people in life. They don't believe it. They're just going along with the great Christian life. You become mute and deaf. You can't really hear from the Lord. And nothing you say is of any value because you don't believe in him. Not believe in faith, but you don't believe in him. The power is released when you move forward, even when you don't completely understand. God has told it to me. It's going to happen. I'm not going to doubt him. You know what one thing the Lord has told you? If you're a follower of Christ, I'm just picking one thing out. If you're a follower of Christ, if you surrendered your life to Christ, if you counted on his finished work at the cross and his resurrection, do you know what the Bible says? There's no fear in death. Let that one sink there for a minute. What could man do to us? What, make fun of us? Put us up on Facebook? Put us in Instagram, tweet something about us. As we love and love through our abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, we're patient with people. We look, bear long with people. When people backstab us, we keep loving them. Oh, there's, there's boundaries. Sure, there's boundaries, but we keep loving and loving and loving and patience. And then the Lord's love. And the Lord says, there's nothing that they could do to you. They could even kill you but I've already taken care of that one. What happens now, folks? Unless the Lord comes first, what happens when the Lord comes in and says, I got news for you. You have cancer, and it's terminal. Or your heart's giving out, and you have a month to live. Or you're fired. What? What can man do to us? The Bible tells us that he took the sting out of death. Now, I'm not talking about, geez, if I had to fall out of an airplane, I wouldn't enjoy the physical part of it or got burnt to death. I wouldn't enjoy the physical part of it. But the Bible says that he took care of death and even the fear of death, all the stings out of it, because when you leave here, you're going to be with him. And that's true. And I'm just bringing one example out of how we can disbelieve and how even in the Christian community we can be fearful people when the Bible tells us not to be. That Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection has solved all of that for you. So, I'm not saying live in an uh, 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 un... Uh, what's the word? Uh, not to be cautious in your life, so to speak, but, but here... I, what, what this allows you to do is just live your life full blaze for God himself. Well, he says, I'm Gabriel. I'm giving you these glad tidings. You're going to be mute, mute and not able to speak. These things take place because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. You get that? You want your time but sometimes when you pray, it's God's time and you have to deal with it in the best way. He knows what's best for you. 
well, here, and the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. You know why? He must have been thinking to himself, how am I going to give the blessing? I've had this amazing experience, of course, and I'm going to have a son. And he probably was jumping up and down and just praising the Lord. That took a while. But then he had to figure out, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? I can't give the blessing. This is my big day. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to just bomb in front of the people. And he couldn't speak to them. And they perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them. He, this, this is the first. Uh, this is how charades started, folks. And he remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, could you imagine how long that week must have taken for him because he wanted to get back to his wife and tell her that we're going to have a baby. So it was. And to just proclaim the goodness of the Lord all these years of fretting and worrying. And here he's delivered it to us. As soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. The baby is growing now. And she hid herself five months. Some people say because she was embarrassed. But look, folks, the first five months, you don't show as much. Maybe what she was doing, just spending time meditating and praising God for how good he'd been to her. You be a Berean there and think about that. But he, she said, when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, Real quickly, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, you folks aren't having any sort of reaction right here. But to somebody who was reading this, they're like, hold on. Nazareth? They all knew nothing good came from Nazareth. Nazareth? See, it's up at the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is so beautiful and plush and wonderful, but there's two main roads, too, that kind of just come right by the Sea of Galilee in the ancient times. But see, Nazareth is off to the west, about 8 to 10 miles out in the middle of the hill country. It's a nothing place where if I was God, I certainly would never have set the story there. And if I was writing the Bible... I certainly wouldn't write that this story started to take place out of Nazareth because the people would reading it who had biases and prejudice against Nazareth would have been repulsed. What do you mean in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth? To Nazareth? Why would God have anything to do with us? Man, the legalists that reside inside of us. Here the writer Luke, this highfalutin guy with great credentials who had an opportunity to make, you know, just be a big deal in this world. He's writing to you to tell you that this gospel has opened up to anybody and anywhere. Oh, it's so beautiful. So he says to Nazareth, to a virgin. And by the way, the word in the Greek virgin, it means virgin. You laugh, but that, that doctrine's under attack, like big time. There's no doubt what he means. This lady had never been with a man. She's a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now you need to know, right? There was this uh, uh, contractual agreement between the families. That's the first step in getting married, right? And then the, uh, the, kind of like the engagement. And then there's this betrothal where the actual, you know, I promise to marry you and my whole family backs that up. And you promise back to marry me and my whole family backs that up. That means they were now before God connected. But they then had to wait a long time to consummate the marriage. And why? Well, it was a picture, I think, uh, of, of things in uh, prophetic times. We won't go into it now. But you had this stage. And here, Mary and Joseph... They're in this betrothal stage. They've committed to one another. The contract and the covenant has been made. She's a virgin. She's to a man whose name was Joseph. And you and I, we don't think about this, but it was of the house of David. And that's important. That's really important. That's because the Messiah had to come from that family. 1 Samuel 7, if you don't know that. Go there and read that. And having come in the, in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. Of course Mary's highly favored. Don't get scared. She is birthing 
the Messiah. She's the highly favored one. But you could go to Ephesians 1 verse 6 and know that anybody who's in Christ is highly favored. She's highly favored. She birthed the Lord. But you're highly favored. And the Lord is with you, Matthew 28, 20. Guess who also the Lord is with? You too, if you're in Christ. And she, blessed are you among women. Of course she's blessed, Ephesians 1, 3. And of course she's blessed among women. She had the Savior of the world in her womb. But see, here's what we have in the church. We have people who overemphasize Mary and what she is. Mary herself is going to tell you in verse seven, uh, uh, 47... That Mary needs a savior. <laughs> but see, here in the Protestant church, we can overcook that. Because she is highly favored and she is highly blessed. And it speaks of, doesn't it, God's grace to pick and choose as he desires. And he picks this young lady who's betrothed to her husband. And uh, she's blessed among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel says, hey, Mary, don't be afraid. What a common theme. This angel must be amazing. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name uh, Jesus. By the way, this is evoking images of Isaiah 7.14. You could look there. She would know what he's talking about. And could, can you imagine He's saying these things that come from the book of Isaiah all 800 years ago, 830 years ago, and they're coming true in the, her family through her birthing process. Amazing. Call his name Jesus. Jehovah is his salvation. He will be great. Of course, he will be great in all ways. We know that. And he'll be called, listen to this, the son of the highest. And now we've seen. Look, he's going to be the son of a mom, a human mom, but he's also the son of the highest. He's fully man. He's fully God. He's the God man. He's the God man. That's what they're saying. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David's. Uh, excuse me. I said 1 Samuel. That's 2 Samuel 7. Sorry. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So listen. We know because we're studying the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is going to come back and rule and reign from Jerusalem. And that. Uh, a prophecy or that statement right there will come true. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I don't know a man? You might say, is she disbelieving? Most people don't think so because there was no reaction from the angel. No, it was more of like, I'm amazed. How could it be that you could pick me? Not unbelief, but of faith. I can't, I haven't known a man. How are you going to do this? How is the Lord going to do this? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, some people believe that means cousin. Some people don't believe that. Be a good Berean and study it, but she's related somehow, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. In other words, God performs what he says he's going to perform. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her, and Mary arose in those days, went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias, and greeted Elizabeth. Uh, of course she's going to go. Who else but her cousin, her relative, who's gone through the same thing? Who else would understand her? She goes there, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the baby leaped, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Went, yes, it is blessed, but why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. See, Jesus, when he's birthed in your life, you can't help but leap and shout for joy. I say this all the time. I get some strange looks. I know it's almost hard for me to say sometimes because I know people are going through some tough circumstances. We ought to be the most joyful people 
on all the earth. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And I know people are going through tough times, and they should be honest about that. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. He took the fear out of even death. Blessed is he who believed, for there will be fulfillment of these things which were told her from the Lord. Now, you know this. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I'll come back to it next week. There's another old man. Look in verse 25 of chapter 2. His name was Simeon. He lived in Jerusalem. This man was just and devout, just like Zacharias was. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's that mean? It means the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Listen. Listen. A promise is given that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Wow, you're letting your servant depart in peace. And you know the story, I think. Most of you do. And Joseph and his mother, in verse 33, marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, the word will pierce through your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Why did I take you over there? You see the picture of two old men, both devout. One prayed a prayer and gave up on it. Another prayed a prayer and hung in there and believed what the Lord had told him. Now catch it. In both instances, what God had promised came to pass. But one for a time his mouth was shut up and his ears were closed off. It was as if the Lord was saying, in disbelief, there's no power or effectiveness. In other words, what he's telling you here today, I think, and me, is keep abiding. <laughs> keep believing the promises that he gives. And where are his promises found? I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to say it. But right in his word. Where do you find out about the glory and character and the uh, mercy of Christ? Right there in his word. As you pray with him and you bring that Bible into your prayer closet and you're writing things down. And when the Lord uh, uh, nudges you in a way by his Holy Spirit through the word. And he's asked you to do something. When you don't believe... I know you told me to start a home fellowship, but where am I going to start that? We just become like clanging gongs. We're saying stuff, and it's not eternal. There's no power in it. In other words, let's be a Simeon. Help me, Lord, to be a Simeon. Help me, because I want things to help happen fast. Help me when things don't go my way. Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, thanks uh, this morning as we start to encounter who you are through your word. Where you were born and into this world, Lord, and we know you've always existed and uh, you're eternal, Lord. But what a blessing that you would stoop down and come as a baby and live among us and save us, Lord. And we're so grateful and thankful. And we ask that uh, uh, you um, just do a mighty work here in our hearts. Lord, help us to be abiders where we be can become certain of your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.